Hello, everyone. Good morning. Good afternoon. Good evening. Welcome to this new episode of the Road to Forest Valley podcast. I feel. Thank you so much for being here today. I will let you introduce yourself properly, but just to give a bit of a background to the audience, you've completed your PhD at the Delft University of Technology on interorganizational collaboration to reach uh, circular economy goals, and you have prior that 10 plus years different experience across business functions. And today you're very much working in a field where I guess everything that you. Done has come together. W- would you say that's correct? Can you share us a bit about your journey and what led you here? Sure. And firstly, hello, and thank you for the opportunity to uh, share the insights from Circularize and also my personal journey as well. So the 10 plus years of experience within business development and consultancy. This comes. My circular journey actually started from my engagement with the Ellen MacArthur Foundation back in 2013. I graduated in 2009 from Manchester Business School, and 2009 was not the best time to graduate. I wanted to go into sustainable consulting, but unfortunately, at that time, in the midst of a recession, sustainability was a nice to have. And essentially, I took the advice of a mentor of mine, who highlighted that I should learn how businesses operate, and he identified that I would probably be good at sales. So I did end up in a sales organisation. Which I'd uh, worked in business development for five years, but then I kept on developing projects and value, and then having to hand over to the quote-unquote more technical people to develop the project. This always left me feeling a little bit hollow. At which point, I decided to make a big change in my life. I left London, I left my job, and I left the company. And the life of sales, and I went and did a master's in environmental management at Cranfield University. Prior to this, though, I scoured the internet for everything I could find vis-a-vis sustainability thinking, and was very lucky to find the Ellen MacArthur Foundation were running their first massive open online course introducing the circular economy concept. I was doubly lucky when I found out that Cranfield was also a pioneering university. This allowed me to focus my master's research onto a circular economy innovation project, which I explored the recovery of plastic materials for 3D printing. This was a project that I ran in 2013 as part of my master's, and for me, the idea of it staying as a piece of paper that I received a grade for was again a very hollow victory. So instead of just leaving it as a piece of paper, I decided to join a startup based in the Netherlands, and actually transferred. To Holland in 2015 to work with the Better Future Factory to commercialise the idea of recycled material. Between the, then and now, I've been back to the UK. I've worked for research organisations, and through this experience, I understood that to deliver on a circular economy, collaboration is hugely important. At this point, I actually wrote my own PhD proposal, and through my contacts and network within TU Delft, was able to secure funding to explore. The challenge of how to facilitate collaboration. Now I find myself within Circularize. I've known Mesbar and Jordi, the two co-founders of the company, since they founded the company. That's also because the project grew out of their master's project. Actually, to be uh, confirmed on that, it grew out of Mesbar's master's project. And at this point, this really triggered me that Mesbar had not only. Done a very good master's project, but actually wanted to commercialize his idea. So we've been in contact for about four or five years, and at each point, 
the questions were always, where is Circularize going? And their question to me was, what are you doing post your PhD? Because my focus topic is on collaborative innovation. And the key aspect that I come to from this is if you can't transfer data and share that across the value chain, you can't develop circular economy business models or product design or recovery strategies. You need transparency of data and information flows to be able to unlock the potential of circular economy. So this, as you indicated, Lulu, is where now all of these strains come together and I'm working with the Circularized team to help them transition but firstly, business models within the uh, companies that we're working with and unlock the features that blockchain can enable to really try and see if the circular strategies that have a lot of promise can actually be realized. Love that. Data across value chains. Without that, can't have business models. Okay, I'm like writing these things down. You mentioned something that was quite interesting. I'm just following up on that a little bit. You said when you first joined the space of circular economy, it was still 2009, not a good time to graduate, and, and sustainability was considered a nice to have. Would you say we've come uh, to a very different place from there? Is it still a nice to have, or do you think it has changed? Just from your personal take on that yeah the i'd like to add a caveat to what i mean by the nice to have within the specifics of 2009 when the recession was in full swing organizations were looking at their bottom line in a very focused way but what we have seen since then is obviously extinction rebellion uh, fridays for future there is a growing assessment both from the public but also within academia it's been there for a long time but in policy and business where they're really recognizing without having a sustainable plan or future the their operations are going to cease what we're also now seeing is that investors and banks are also wanting to look at not just the bottom line but the sustainability of the portfolio that they're managing mm. so with all of these different changes i think circular economy and the reason that I was triggered by circular economy as an idea was that it didn't take the single argument of stop using this, don't use, that is bad. It said be more sensible about what you're using and plan for the end of life for the material and look for opportunities to maximize any material or energy that you're using throughout the supply chain. Mm. So this is about unlocking economic potential whilst also trying to do positive aspects within the world. I think the big change as well that has come is really connecting the finite nature of materials, especially within the electronic supply chain, that the lifestyle that we have today is fundamentally built upon materials that we have a very finite supply of. Mm. So it just makes sense, not even from a business point of view, but even from a societal point of view, to start looking more critically at the materials that we have and how we use them. Yes, couldn't agree more. Really couldn't agree more. So really glad to hear that from your side. I completely echo that. Let's dive into a little bit on Circularize. As you mentioned, such an interesting concept. You guys operate at the intersection of circular economy and blockchain. But could you explain a little bit more the context in which Circularize has been uh, created, you mentioned the masters already, and, and your ultimate promise and future potentials of this context. What is it trying to solve within the circular economy context? Sure. The 
The project, as I say, started as a master's research project, and Mesbar himself didn't plan on becoming a blockchain expert. This wasn't that he looked for uh, a use of blockchain. Actually, the exact opposite. He was looking at a problem. I would argue as well that circular orientated innovation in general is a problem-centric innovation approach. How do we change something within the current system and try and create a, a better system in the future? So really systemic change. Our goal really came around understanding the challenges of transparency within supply chain. Actually, the trigger for Mesbar was when he visited an end-of-life recovery um, company whereby a person's job was to check if there was a vial of magnesium in the back of LCD TVs. That magnesium vial shouldn't have been there, but due to certain manufacturing processes, in a percentage of those, there was magnesium. If you then throw that into a shredder, you contaminate the uh, rest of the material that you're trying to recover. It then becomes waste and you have to essentially incinerate it. So the challenge here was really down to how do you create product reuse, refurbishment, recovery of materials, which are core aspects of circular economy without the transparency of what is inside the product. So the reason that Mesbar came to the blockchain solution was that he felt that this was a way to connect the dots along the supply chain and provide that transparency whilst within our approach, which is uh, using a smart questioning feature, which essentially means it's a zero knowledge proof, which means we don't share the actual data of the bill of materials or of the life cycle assessment or whatever information the organization chooses to share. We actually allow other organizations to interrogate that information. So an example here would be if a company wanted to include their bill of materials at the start of the chain when they're producing a plastic material, for example, that plastic material is picked up and maybe goes through five or six actors to become a television, let's say. Yeah. But the end-of-life material recovery actor would want to know, does this product include flame-retardant chemicals? At the moment, the next best case that they can do is ask the, the actor in front of them, or maybe two. Most organizations don't have transparency over two to three nodes in the supply chain. What we provide with the smart questioning feature is an option to interrogate any single actor that has handled that material and by proxy in our system handled the digital token and can ask the same question. Does this TV include flame retardant chemicals? What you would receive is a yes, no answer. You'd obviously want to ask a follow-up if it was yes, if it's a yes, to what tolerance or what level is this in the product? And is it reaching ROS or REACH regulations? So the feature that we tried to build, and this is under a patent that we're, uh, well, patent pending, which is around providing a public permissionless blockchain, which means that we do not control the data, we do not control or have central authority over it, but we hide the information for everybody behind a zero-proof knowledge that allows the organizations to interrogate the information without having to see all of the information that's there. Okay. If I am a client and I'm considering of using your solution, let's say I'm a manufacturer, how do I practically benefit from it? Is it a database that you pull uh, for me with this type of information that you just shared or is it something else? 
it's ultimately data that I get, right? Information sure. about resources, materials, where it's been, the history, the the entire trackability, the ability to verify it. Is that what I'm getting as a client? You're not necessarily getting that data directly from us. What Circularize provide is the information highway. So we provide a system for each actor in the chain to upload the information that's relevant for that particular material or product or component. Uh, and that information can be anything that they choose. So for instance, let's take an example of an OEM who wants to make a public statement that their product is 95% recycled material. Mm -hmm. What we provide is a data system that allows that OEM to track how much recycled content is in their product and can then make that certified statement. They can say, yes, we are 100% aware that 95% of the material has come from this source, has been processed in this facility and is certified as a recovered plastic material provider. What we provide then is not the data necessarily, that is the company's own data, but the mechanism to transfer it, whilst also keeping proprietary and sensitive information behind the zero knowledge proof protection. Okay, very interesting. So is this why you use blockchain? Exactly. The reason for using blockchain is that each actor who's handled the token has access to that ledger. So once the information is loaded, it cannot be edited without every single actor engaging with it. Key example here, Lulu, would be if I send you an email, which is information, you can receive that email, fine but you can forward it on to any other actor you like without my knowledge. Mm. Now, if I'm sending you privacy or private information, I can put in there a disclosure, this email contains uh, sensitive information, please do not forward it. But I cannot control whether you forward it to anyone. Mm. On the blockchain system, as soon as you forward that token to anyone else to assess the information, every single actor on the ledger will know that you have done that which means that you cannot forward the information onto a, an alternative actor without everyone in the supply chain knowing. Does that make sense? Yeah, 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 definitely. I, and I think that's a really interesting solution that you guys are providing there because data transparency within this space, there's a lot of talk about how much do you, like, transparency is important. It's crucial, obviously. How much do you share, though? How much confidential information do you share? And so forward. How do you draw the line between the two? And I think this is an interesting solution of tackling that. Bill, what about non-blockchain savvy clients and users? Are they able to use this kind of a solution at all? Or do you require them to be very tech savvy? Um, just to build on the previous point you, you made about the, the proprietary information, etc. For some of the markets that we work with, especially when you get into plastic packaging, their core competency or competitive advantage could be as simple as that they have a 3% difference in the efficiency rate of their processing step. Exactly. Mm. That could be the make or break of their business model. So our approach is to protect that proprietary information while allowing the end actor to interrogate it. But to build on to your next question that you asked about the uh, nature of blockchain and how tech savvy you need to be, I would argue that many of the listeners on this podcast are probably doing so via a mobile phone application. How many of those users know how to code that mobile phone application? So 
it's a little bit of a black box in the sense that if you use an application day in, day out, you're using the functionality that the code, whether it's written in Python, whether it, whatever coding language it has been done, but you don't necessarily have to engage with, this, with the underlying code. You just need to know how to use it and what the functionality can be. Now, of course, if somebody wants to interrogate our technical specification. We have a white paper live on our website, which you can look into for some of the more technical aspects of the zero knowledge proof. Because we're also built on the Ethereum network, which is a fully permissionless public blockchain, you can look at how Ethereum is written, plus also any of the changes that they write. So the technical specs are there if you want to interrogate it. But I would always question to somebody, how much do you need to know? And actually, do you just want to explore the functionality, which the best way to do that is going through a process of learning by doing and actually seeing what blockchain can do. And if you don't understand the behind technical specification, I should add a caveat. There are parts of cryptography and especially the zero knowledge proof that I do not also understand. But luckily within Circularize, we have a CTO who does, and that's his core expertise. So the question there is, do you need to know everything to be able to use it? Mm. Yes. And that is a very good answer. We send emails, we don't necessarily know what servers do behind everything. And one of the things I like to say about blockchain is obviously in terms of UX and user experience, just experience in general, uh, we still have a little bit of way to go beyond the technicalities in such a way that it would be just very simple to use, but I, I very much agree with what you're saying. Then I want to talk about something that I get asked a lot, blockchain and energy consumption. We both operate in the circular economy in the space of sustainability, and your solution is reliant on this technology that also happens to be quite crazy with energy consumption. What are your thoughts about this? And I'm not asking in terms of how do you address this, because it's such a big challenge, but what are your thoughts? on blockchain and energy consumption. In general, when I looked into this as a question prior to joining Circularize, because it was also a question I thought on, when you look at cryptocurrencies, for instance, which are not blockchain, they are applications built on top of a blockchain, but many people combine them together. But the energy use for Bitcoin alone, if the uh, rate of increase continues, I mean, already I think the energy use of uh, Crypto for blockchain is somewhere in the order of energy that Greece uses. I saw a statistic the other day. As to whether that is true or not, I don't know. Mm. But we are building our system on the Ethereum network. We're aware, obviously, that currently it uses significant amounts of energy. However, Ethereum is also looking to solve these problems for themselves uh, with their release of Ethereum 2.0. However, our way of dealing with this is that we are not linked to any specific blockchain. We are actually agnostic. We can switch the circularized system to a different a public permissionless blockchain with relative ease. The reason that we have built that functionality and capability is that if there becomes a more suitable blockchain that uses less energy and or Ethereum 3.0 is released and essentially they can reduce the proof of stake and the power required to do, then we would switch to a a more sustainable and more energy efficient blockchain. The challenge here also comes around not just the energy use, but where is that energy coming from? So I think this is a much bigger debate within the whole digitization approach. How are we going to make sure that the, the increase of data centers 
don't essentially wipe off any of the carbon savings that we try to do via switching to electric vehicles, via traveling less, etc. So it's it's a global challenge, but our approach is to be as agile as possible so that we can switch to the best available technology, both from a functionality point of view and from an energy point of view. Mm. That's interesting. And from my perspective, I think it also depends a little bit on what you compare it to, right? So if you see that as just a piece of technology, it is very heavy on energy. But if you compare it to what it does, to what the status quo of that is today, I think there will be some different type of perspectives and, and it's, it's a bigger discussion, obviously. Very much agree. And actually, Lulu, just to build on it, the scope here also is if you're comparing the blockchain-enabled solution, which enables recovery of materials that can go through three or four lifetimes because you can maintain the digital thread and awareness of the bill of materials, and that material recovery rate can jump to 90%, let's say. Companies could, in future promise, create contracts whereby primary material producers agree and create a smart contract on the chain that states they would purchase material back at a particular property ratio at end of life with the direct aim to reuse, then where does the benefit add? Uh, if you can reuse a material four, five, six times because you're aware of what is in, included in that material and or product it could be refurbishment or remanufacturing, you don't always have to go to end of life material recovery to gain these benefits. But if the blockchain system allows you to look at multiple life cycles for a product or component, then you've got to start thinking about the embodied energy that that saved by the lack of processing new virgin material and or the, the reduction in processing. If it's aluminium, for instance, aluminium recovery uses a lot of energy, but does it use less when you compare it to recovery of virgin material? Mm. or uh, Sorry, the production of virgin material. So I think... We have to start thinking in the, what is the scope of the technology and what is the technology allowing vis-a-vis -vis material reuse and recovery. Yeah, exactly that. So it's very much depending on what, what we compare it to. As you mentioned, that's solving essentially an entire chunk of a supply chain or, or value uh, chains. And if you think of it that way, it is very efficient. And I like to compare it to money sometimes uh, as well. We have entire industries built just to build trust amongst us. So if a piece of technology can solve that, we need proper and total cost benefit analysis to, to figure this out but very much agree on that it it's, depends on what we look at I feel I wanted to go a little bit back to the PhD that you mentioned earlier it's such an interesting topic that you researched on and it's tied to, with everything that we're talking about here and and you researched on interorganizational collaboration and and how uh, that can be feasible or possible. Can you share a little bit more on your findings or your thoughts or anything that came out of that? And, and, and is there anything that can be applied in today's world or in what you do, for instance? Very directly, in fact. So within my research, I would argue I studied the soft side of collaboration, how to get humans within companies to work together, looking into the thinking process. How do you get them to ideate together and center and align around a specific problem or challenge? Within this, 
Firstly, it's around identifying those internal and external mechanisms for the individual to change their behavior. Some actors within a company have a, a deep intrinsic motivation for sustainability, but some do not. And understanding what the individual actor's motivation is crucial to collaborating with them. And actually, there's a lot of research around if, sustain, if you are only sustainability focused and you actually put blinkers on to organizations that could help you deliver on your sustainability goal, but essentially you, there's this fear of selling out essentially for some uh, sustainable entrepreneurs. So how to get these organizations to work together requires a lot of work around alignment, creating a common language, making sure that when you're speaking, if you use the term materiality, for instance, materiality can mean many different things depending on which market or sector you're working in. So bringing these people together, these soft challenges, the key output is it takes a lot of time and companies and individuals need to really want to do this and want to achieve the bottom line, which is changing a sustainable, well, making ch sustainable changes. What I worked on was also the application and development of tools, methods, design process. So myself and two colleagues from TU Delft developed well, a methodology to go from ideation, which incorporated a card deck, which looked at the different strategies of circular economy, be it slowing, closing, narrowing, or regenerating loops, and then indicated these at a product design, business model, and ecosystem level. So that first step is really around the potential ideas and strategy combinations that you can deliver. The second aspect that we worked on was how do you take those ideas and bring it into a collaborative structure because no organization can develop a, a fully circular solution or product in isolation. They need collaborative partners. So what are the resources that you need? Who is the customer and what is their problem? And ultimately, which are the actors that are going to help you scale your idea? Because it's very nice doing a one-off lighthouse project to show proof of concept, but unless the concept can scale, it's not going to create impact. Now, once you've got that idea, you then need to actually pilot and test both in the immediate stage and then also at a scaling stage. So the third step there was really around implementing pilots. Circularstrategies.org, it's academic published content. Most of the publications are in sustainability, which is an open source publication, which, and we purposely chose that to be open source so that as many people, practitioners, students, researchers can access it as well. Okay, that's very interesting. And this is something I could talk about for a really long time, especially if we start bringing in different cultures, different states, which each country and region and, and company is in as well. We will think about sustainability in different levels. And there, I think your aligned interests play such a key role because what is your motive of pushing this initiative forward? Is it aligned with mine and so forth? So I think that's a very interesting point. Um, I agree massively there. And we have done some projects in different, different geographical regions and both the interpretation of circular economy and sustainability can be vastly different. Mm -hmm. Ways of working can be vastly different. And this is really a global problem. So how to translate the core principles and ideas of a circular economy into the different 
geographical areas and ways of working is a huge challenge. The key finding also is like, how do you trigger your champions to create that nexus? What is a minimal viable ecosystem to start creating a, a, a fully circular idea? These are things that are still unclear. Yes. I sometimes play around with having a currency in the world that would lead us towards a certain SDG or sustainability goal. And that would itself be a self-motivating trigger for you know people and organizations across the world. But I agree with you. This is a, it takes a different realm. Okay, so we've t- talked about Circularize, uh, your solution a little bit, and also your research, certain findings, applications of that. I wanted to hear from you. How optimistic are you? at the moment knowing all of this what are the exciting things within the space of circular economy or blockchain where you operate at the moment and what do you find most challenging so in the beginning of your question you asked about optimism Mm -hmm. i think throughout my time studying researching and working with companies i I've had many moments of what I would call disillusionment, but I'm still here and I'm still trying. And what is keeping me optimistic is that I'm seeing more and more individuals and companies really putting down statements and plans for changing what they're doing. And they recognize that time is running out to make these big changes. What also fills me with a lot of optimism is seeing the general discussion within society, both with the Fridays for Future campaigns, but also just how governments are trying to respond to this. The uh, recent announcement in the German courts around the targets being set, that they actually indicated that the, the targets were still putting the burden of responsibility on future generations. So they're now forcing them to build incremental targets. So it's not just pushing the the problem down the line. Similarly, the Dutch government has had to defend some of its carbon targets and its reporting on those. This discussion is happening from all directions now. I think there's a consensus amongst the world that we need to start making changes. And it's not just one actor is leading it anymore. It's not just the sustainability professionals saying this. It's also business. They're looking at their bottom line. It's also governments. They're looking at their own future operations and how do they manage societies if uh, global warming continues, Uh, especially living in the Netherlands, a country that is largely below sea level. Mm. This general consensus is filling me with optimism because there are a lot of cool ideas happening. To build on to the second part of your question around what are the most exciting trends within circular economy, I think it's the mass of experimentation. People are really approaching these problems and I see circular economy triggering people to trying a lot of new ways of doing things. And with the blockchain side, I see blockchain as a a base technology. It's not going to be a solution or it will fix everything. It's not the magic bullet that's going to destroy any problem that we have or challenge. But what it allows is a way to connect actors together so they can share information. And once you have information about where a material has been, its sustainable impact assessment throughout the supply chain, you can start to make decisions about that. If you don't have that information to begin with, you can't make decisions. So the trend that I'm seeing is that more and more companies are investing the time, energy, and effort to really understand their own impacts initially. That's activity that's been going on for some time. But they are now starting to look at the impacts of their supply chain. And this is where technologies like blockchain, that's not the only technology that's suitable for this, but 
it's one of the more robust ones that allow this transparency to be there whilst still protecting information. So that general trend towards wanting to understand the impact of their supply chain, I think is something that's very important. Nice. Can you think of any challenges within this space? What would you say are the biggest challenges and what are you foreseeing? So there was a, a paper written years ago now, I believe, called uh, Innovative, Innovative Goliaths. Mm-hmm. And in, oh no, something about Goliath and innovative David. So we are so we're a company like ourselves, Circularize, we're a startup. We're growing as a company, but we're a tiny organization. And we're talking to massive incumbent process organization companies and huge brands. They are very slow to change. And I had a very good analogy of this from somebody that I interviewed years ago. And he was working for a large process-orientated company. And he said, trying to innovate within the circular economy is like trying to drive a car down a highway while changing your tires at the same time. So their approach is to change one tire at a time. Now, externally to anyone outside of that organization, they may think, Yeah, but you've only done this small little bit. But this car still needs to keep going down the motorway while paying the wages for people, while providing the products and services that it does. So even though we see these incremental changes happening, actually the impact of those can be huge once they've aligned on it. So what we're finding and the challenge aspect is making those proof of concepts tangible enough that the large incumbents and OEMs of the world say, this makes sense, let's do it. But once they do, the impact will be huge. It's just about how do you change the wheels of your car while you're driving at 100 miles an hour down the motorway? Mm. There are many challenges involved. Key ones to that, I think, is also education and really getting people to get their head around the systemic nature of what a circular economy transition will really mean. And because there are so many challenges, what I hope is that this actually triggers people and excites people to rolling their own sleeves up and trying to look at what they can do with either in their own job or within their own behavior. How can they interact with these ideas and how can they be part of that transition and change, either by who they vote for, by the products they buy, and also challenging themselves on what are they willing to pay for a truly sustainable product. Because consumers have a large body of power. If they stop buying products, companies will change to make sure that they buy their products. So a challenge here, and this is one that I've not looked into, but I had colleagues at TU Delft that did, is how to engage sustainable behavior with consumers. Now, one of the bigger challenges that I see there is how do you turn around to consumers of today and or tomorrow and say, think about sufficiency. Do you need this product? And if so, use it. But what are you going to do with that product afterwards? And I would invite the listeners of this podcast to ask themselves, do they have an old mobile phone sitting in their drawer? which, by the way, has many critical materials and valuable materials in there. If you do, why? So also, the challenge is for people to look at their own scope and what they can control. And if you do have a mobile phone in your drawer, there are many services where you can sell that uh, and actually recoup some value and also provide 
material back into the supply chain so that we don't need to dig up new materials. Love that. There's a lot of that you just shared and the metaphor of the car driving, changing a tire. I sometimes use the metaphor of steering a ship and trying to do a 360 in an open ocean with all the carriage on it. So it is slow, but we are definitely seeing progress. We're running really low on time, but I just wanted to ask you the very last question. So for these, all these big companies or small companies on the highway and on open waters as ships, however you want to think about it, what would be your tip or advice to them if they want to change? What is the first thing to do for someone who has never done this before? They want to shift more into circularity, but have no idea how to, where to start? What's your step one for them? Have a very clear vision on what you want to do and what your challenge is. And make sure that when you start working on that vision and challenge that you share it as widely as possible so that you can actually build a critical mass of people who want to join you and want to help you work on that challenge. I think for me, when you trigger people's excitement, interest and their own creativity and present challenges, but also simultaneously present interesting solutions and actually promote that and share that idea and, and be collaborative from the outset, you will find that many organizations and people will want to work with you based upon your vision and your idea. Working with people and sharing what you have rather than sitting there and saying, okay, I'm keeping my cards close to my chest until we've agreed every single thing. I would actually say, put your cards on the table and say, this is the problem we have. This is the resource that I have. What resource do you have to try and deal with this problem? It's much more of an effectual way of entrepreneurship, assessing what is of interest to you, what skills do you have, what can you do and what do you have and what are you willing to lose, i.e. what could you put in to, the, to try and solve this problem and that you would do it if you don't get anything back. And if you start at that position and you get interesting products out of it, you get great marketing potential, then this is all a key win. If you solve the problem that you started out trying to solve and taking this more effectual approach, that plan will change massively as you start working with people because they will bring in ideas and creativity. But if you start by keeping your cards extremely close to your chest, you're only actually dealing with yourself and the opportunity for creativity and problem solving is greatly reduced. Very much agree with this. I felt like I agreed with absolutely everything that you said today and I was almost thinking that we should have a podcast host who doesn't necessarily agree, so it would be <laughs> more challenging, but very true what you're saying here. And I, I think starting with the vision, starting with the problem and getting people excited and behind on the journey is key, right? There's true power in a certain enthusiasm with these problems. So very much aligned there. Well, thank you so much for today. We're out of time. I would love to ask more questions, but we're at 40 minutes now. So thank you for coming in and sharing all your insights. No, thank you, Lulu. And for any of the audience members who want to understand more about what Circularize is doing, I would invite you to go to www.circularize.com forward slash latest. There you will see the latest video content or output from the work that we are doing. Currently that is a pilot with Porsche and that gives a much more tangible use case for what we're doing. And I would also invite any of the audience members if they want to know more, please reach out via our info at address and we can also obviously share more information about what we're doing. And I hope that 
the answers and discussion I've given today has triggered other people to start their circular economy project or join an idea or project that's already in existence that triggers them, their creativity and passion to make change. Great. Thank you so much, Phil. And thank you, everyone in the audience, for listening. Have a nice the rest of the day. Bye-bye.